Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? It's time for the tech news for Thursday, October 27th, 2022. And we've got a ton to get through. So let's start off with some Apple news. Last week, I talked about how lawmakers in the EU had approved legislation that will require all smartphone manufacturers that use a physical charger to adopt the USB-C standard for sales in the European Union and that this news particularly affects Apple, as the company has relied upon its own proprietary technology called Lightning up until now. Apple's senior VP of Worldwide Marketing, Greg Joswiak, has confirmed that Apple will comply with the new laws, uh, though he did not comment on whether or not Apple will make a global switch to the USB-C standard. So it is possible that the European market will get a USB-C version of the iPhone starting in 2024, late 2024, and that the rest of the world will stick with iPhones that have a lightning port. We don't know yet. 
Joswiak also argued that the Lightning technology actually cuts down on e-waste, which is a claim I find dubious at best. So the claim says that charging bricks, you know, the actual things that you plug into a wall outlet, they frequently have ports for both USB and Lightning cables. And so by switching to USB-C, folks will have no choice but to toss all their old Lightning cables because those won't go to anything anymore. Which, you know, sure, but I don't know about you. I know that I have to replace my cables fairly regularly. Either they get wear and tear on them, I'm particularly bad about rolling my office chair over cables that honestly are just too long. I need to get shorter cables or more likely I misplace them during travel. And then I find that I need a cable to connect my thing to my other thing, like my phone to a charging brick or whatever. By consolidating all that into a single standard, a standard that works pretty darn well for that matter, then I'm more likely to have a backup cable than if I need to keep separate types for all my devices. Yes, there are different levels of USB-C. There are like three amp and five amp versions. So there are differences, but for the most part, like you can just swap cables out unless you're doing something like trying to power uh, a computer or a display or something, in which case you need to make sure you have the five amp version. But Otherwise, like it's really makes it simple to to swap in and out of your your cables. And I'm all for that kind of consolidation. Anyway, Joswiak, you know, Apple's rep kind of made it clear that Apple is complying, but is totes not happy about doing it, at least is going to comply in Europe. Here in the United States, there are a few lawmakers who are considering similar legislation that would standardize stuff like charging cables. But I am not particularly optimistic that such legislation will ultimately become law here. I don't, I don't know. I just don't think it's likely. Maybe we'll see. Swapping over to Alphabet, which of course is the company that's the parent company to stuff like Google, YouTube, etc. It's starting to really tighten its belt across all of its subsidiaries. Uh, over the course of the last year, Alphabet had added more than 36,000 new employees to the company, which is a big old yowza. That's a lot of hires. But those days of heady hiring appear to be at an end, or at least to be put on pause. Uh, in an investor call this week, Alphabet's CEO Sundar Pichai assured investors that the company is taking a much more critical look at projects to determine which ones are really important and to direct resources to those, as well as to make quote-unquote course corrections. And I think this is important for Google. The company has frequently launched projects that saw like a lackluster response, sometimes because, you know, a lot of people feel like it's a, a, a boy who cried wolf situation that Google has so frequently pulled the plug on products that there's a reluctance to get invested in a new one because you're worried that the company will stop supporting it within a year or two. That's kind of earned that reputation. So there really is a need to focus on specific projects to make sure that those are adding value to the company. I get that. But the company has also had to cut way back on a lot of employee travel and related expenses. At the same time, the advertising business is taking a pretty big hit. That is not unusual in times of economic crisis or economic distress or recession, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'll spare you an actual rant, but just in your head, insert at this point in the episode, 
a rant where I yell about the fact that avoiding naming something like the reluctance to name whatever economic situation we're in does not at all change the nature of that situation. It's still bad, even if we refuse to name it something specific. Anyway, all this means that Alphabet's chief source of revenue, the advertising business, that's where I remind you, Google is not really a search company. It's an advertising company. Anyway, that's taken a big hit. It also means that other entities that depend upon ad revenue are hurting. So that would include folks like YouTube creators, for example. So this is a pretty big ripple effect. Pachai's call with investors does not signal like a massive catastrophe or anything like that. But you could say that this is another kind of red flag that we're in a period where tech companies in particular and the people looking for work within the tech industry are encountering some pretty tough challenges. Okay, let's switch over to our favorite punching bag, that is Meta. Yesterday, uh, yesterday being Wednesday, October 26th, 2022, for any of y'all from the future who are listening back on old tech news episodes for some reason. Anyway, yesterday, Mark Zuckerberg and his team held an earnings call that delivered some bad news to investors who have more than responded in kind, as we will soon learn. So in that call, we learned that Meta's revenue dropped 4% compared to this time last year, that net income was down a whopping 52% from this time last year, and that spending is up by 19%. So Meta is bringing in less money overall. That would be the revenue bit. It's bringing in way less of what we will generously refer to as profit. That would be the income bit. That's the drop of 52% from a year ago. And this is all following on the heels of other bad news, like the fact that EU regulators have forced Meta to divest itself of Giphy, the animated GIF platform it had purchased in 2020. So that's something that the company is going to have to do in the near future. And considering that there's also this growing skepticism around the concept of the metaverse and that Mark Zuckerberg appears fully dedicated to pursuing his ver version, his vision, I guess I could say, of a metaverse, uh, it has some folks, like some investors, extremely displeased with the company's direction. This lack of confidence in, in Meta and Meta's strategy is reflected in the company's stock price, which dropped nearly 20% in after-hours trading following this earnings call. That drop in stock price meant that Meta saw a rapid loss of around $65 billion in its market capitalization. Market cap is essentially the what you get when you take the value of a share of stock in a company multiplied by the numbers of shares of that stock. And then it gives a kind of general indication of the company's value, right? You take, like if, if you've got $10 stock and there are 10 shares out there, you multiply 10 by 10, you get 100. That's how much market cap your little, your little approach has. So Meta saw a drop of $65 billion in its market cap because of that stock price drop. Uh, by the way, that doesn't have any real direct impact on how much cash the company may or may not have on hand at that moment. It can have an impact on a company if it wants to, you know, borrow money or whatever for an acquisition. Then the market cap change can make a big difference. But it's really just to show that there's this drop in confidence in Meta in general. Zuckerberg said on the call that if Meta wasn't pursuing the development of a metaverse, 
it might be the case that no one else would have stepped up and no work would be done on it. And to that I say, okay, so what? But, you know, that's because I remain really skeptical that a metaverse approach is really the future of connectivity, commerce, entertainment, etc. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe that is the future. And and I'm just incapable of seeing it. Uh, maybe I am being obstinate in my reluctance to buy into the metaverse vision. But it just it just seems unrealistic to me because of a lot of different factors. And I think uh, a lot of investors feel in a, a similar way, right? They also feel, feel uncertain. They certainly see how the metaverse project is requiring enormous uh, uh, costs in meta and that this is, in fact, impacting the company's performance. Maybe we're all wrong. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg is right on the money. That is possible. But whether we're right or Zuckerberg's right or there's no one who's right, Zuckerberg has indicated that we're likely to see future quarters with similar tough results moving forward, that Meta remains committed to this Metaverse pursuit and will continue to spend money and perhaps in increasing quantities in an effort to see it to fruition. Meanwhile, companies like TikTok continue to attract the younger users that Meta desperately wants to hook into its own ecosystem. So it may be that Meta's future is really just meant for a group of folks who are steadily aging out of the platform with no replenishment in sight. Okay, we've got a lot more tech news to go through, including some more from Meta. But first, let's take this quick break. Working remotely. Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations 
questions that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. We're back. The Association for Computer Machinery's journal published a study that has some disturbing findings, namely that Facebook ads appear to target people not just on their interests and their likes and their dislikes and their browsing activity and sometimes their app activity, unless it's an Apple iPhone, in which case that got kind of eliminated once Apple gave users the option to opt out of that but also on things like their race, their gender, and their age, even if the user isn't sharing that info with the platform itself. The study says that Facebook is using image recognition software to draw conclusions about users and then serve up ads based on those conclusions. For example, the study found that white users were far less likely to encounter ads that feature black people in them. The researchers actually created ads for job listings to post on Facebook, And these job listings featured AI-generated images of people. Some of the ads had white people in them, some had black people in them. And by tracking the ads, the research group saw that black users made up 81% of the audience that saw ads that had black people in them. With ads that had white people in them, black users made up 50% of that audience. Ads with teenage girls featured in them went on to an audience that was 57% male and many of them over the age of 55, which creepy. I mean, that's not a good look for a platform that's often associated with an aging user base. Uh, If it was an ad that featured an older woman inside the image, well, the audience for those ads ended up being 58% women. So the researchers indicate that for some uses, this kind of targeting might feel like Like, it's a little sus, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, let's face it, you are more likely to respond to an ad if the person or persons appearing in the ad kind of look like you do, right? Like, you, there's just this this tendency, you know, we want to see ourselves reflected in the things that we see. But when it comes to stuff like job listings and housing and education, the targeting can reinforce social problems. In fact, Facebook has been in trouble for that in the past. Back in 2016, there was a massive lawsuit that focused on this. Uh, Also, you know, we're looking at a system that's using machine learning and AI 
and machine learning by relying upon strategies that worked in the past could end up perpetuating discriminatory practices that disproportionately hurt certain populations, namely people of color. The study also indicates that Facebook's approach could be antithetical to the desires of their clients, like the the companies that are actually paying for the ads, because a lot of these companies want to project an image that values diversity. But if the diversity reflected in the ads means that those ads aren't being shown to all populations, that might mean that the ad isn't getting the effect that the base company wanted in the first place. Now, meta reps say that meta is dedicated to preventing discrimination on its platforms and that the company continues to develop its technologies with that goal in mind. Further, we should be hearing more about Meta's pushes to to fix these kinds of problems in the months ahead. But this is a good example of how machine learning and how AI can have a bias built into it and how that bias can have a negative impact. Now, that's not to say that all bias is necessarily bad or that all bias has to be avoided, but there are definite areas where you could say, yeah, this is a problem and this kind of constitutes that. And some more meta bad news. In Washington state here in the United States, a judge has issued a $24.7 million fine for failing to comply with a state campaign finance disclosure law. So the court found Facebook guilty of violating the state's Fair Campaign Practices Act more than 800 times, 822 times, in fact. And this is not the first time this has happened. The company came up for the same sort of problem back in 2018. So that law says that any platform that airs or displays political advertising has to maintain a publicly accessible database of who purchased the ads, including their names and addresses, plus the information has to include whom the ads were targeting, how many views the ads received, uh, how the ads were paid for, and that kind of stuff. So anyone who asks for this information has the right to it. And the platforms are compelled by law to comply and hand over that precious information. But Facebook has declined to acquiesce to that request for quite some time. It has not followed the rules according to the the case, and it has argued that the law, quote, burdens political speech, end quote. Though that's kind of a tough thing to argue, considering that, you know, platforms like television, radio, and newspapers have all been complying with this law since it was passed in 1972, so I'm not sure that that's a really valid argument. Uh, There's no doubt that Facebook has access to the information that's required. The company has just repeatedly failed to hand that information over. The law allows the judge to fine an entity up to $10,000 per violation. And as I said, there were 822 violations. And you might say, huh, 822 times 10,000 does not equal $24.7 million. That's, That's way more than what you should expect. Well, that same law also allows a judge to triple the penalty per violation if the judge determines that the violations were intentional in nature. And since Facebook went through this same process back in 2018, it's kind of hard to argue that the company wasn't intentionally violating that law. Thus, we get the $24.7 million fine. That might be the largest campaign finance penalty ever issued here in the United States. Of course, compared to Facebook's revenues, which even in the downturn it's experiencing right now are you know, measured in the billions of dollars, 
this is small change, but then no company really wants to just hand over 25 million bucks. So it's not exactly a slap on the wrist either. It's, you know, literally the largest penalty that the judge was allowed to pass by law. Now let's hop on over to Twitter to find out what's going on with Elon Musk's on again, off again, on again, again, acquisition deal. So as it stands, Musk has until the close of business tomorrow, Friday, the 28th of October, to finalize his acquisition of Twitter. If you'll recall, Musk initially agreed to buy Twitter at $54.20 per share back in the spring of this year. Uh, Right now, that's actually just a hair over what Twitter is currently trading at. Like when I went to record, Twitter is trading at just under $54 per share. So it's really close to what that deal was proposed at. Uh, I suspect that the current share price reflects people anticipating that this deal is going to go through by the end of tomorrow. So even a small gain is a gain. So I think that has driven up interest in the stock and thus we see it really close to what Musk was uh, agreeing to buy it for. Of course, Musk famously attempted to back out of the deal, which then prompted a court case to force Musk to go through with the deal. Twitter brought that against Musk. Uh, That court case is currently on hold unless the deal does not complete by the end of day tomorrow, in which case the case is back on. So Musk himself arrived at Twitter HQ yesterday on Wednesday. He carried a bathroom sink as a kind of publicity stunt. Uh, I'm not sure what the message was because typically we talk about kitchen sink deals, not bathroom sink ones. According to Gizmodo, Musk said it was a, a visual pun on let that sink in. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe he's just very particular about where he washes his hands. I don't know. Anyway, Musk also published an open letter to Twitter employees to address some fears and concerns people have had about this acquisition. For example, he denied that he plans to eliminate up to 75% of the workforce at the company. That was something that had been reported in the past by the Washington Post. Uh, There is an indication that he expects there to be some downsizing and in fact had received uh, previous advice from Jason Kalikanakis out of all people to uh, require people to come into the office because that's going to weed people out. Like people will self-select for leaving the company, but then that tends to be like your best people too. Uh, So that's not the best advice I've ever heard, but you know, it's it's very possible that Busk will attempt to downsize Twitter simply by being unpleasant, something that I am told he has a modicum of experience at doing. Anyway, Musk also said he has no intention to allow Twitter to become a, quote, free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences, end quote. That also conflicts a little bit earlier with reports that Musk believed Twitter should be kind of an unfettered platform for free speech. But to be fair, Musk has pretty much always maintained that this should actually fall within the legal parameters of the various countries within which Twitter operates. So in other words, you can't say absolutely anything if the country where you are operating has limits on free speech. Like you have to you have to operate within the boundaries of the law. Uh, he has at least made that concession. He has also indicated that he intends for Twitter to ease off on content moderation, which could allow for even more misinformation to proliferate across the platform, and that he would reverse the permanent bans of several 
prominent accounts, most notably that of Donald Trump, who has seen his own truth social platform struggle to find significant traction. Anyway, we'll have to wait until tomorrow to see if the deal actually does go through for real, which, I, I mean, I'm, there's like a 70% chance in my mind that that's going to happen. Or if Musk will pull some other maneuver in an attempt to get out of the deal. Uh, I'm not sure that there is an exit strategy that wouldn't also put the court case back on track to continue. So I think there's a, a more than decent chance that by the end of tomorrow, Twitter will be a privately held company owned by Elon Musk. CNBC and other outlets report that Tesla, another Elon Musk company, is currently under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. This is with regards to Tesla's driver assist systems and whether or not the company misled consumers with exaggerated claims about those systems and their capabilities, namely that they essentially constituted self-driving. Now, at the very least, there appears to be two distinct storylines coming out of Tesla. So on the marketing side, the company seems to indicate that Tesla vehicles, when they're in full self-driving mode, are, you know, to any practical consideration, an autonomous vehicle. They don't go quite that far to say it, but one video on Tesla's site that shows a man inside a Tesla vehicle goes on to say, quote, the person in the driver's seat is only there for legal reasons. He is not doing anything. The car is driving itself, end quote. That is not the same thing as saying this car is autonomous, but it does seem to imply, hey, the system can take full control of your vehicle safely and you can just sit back and relax. However, during actual operation, Tesla has messages that tell drivers they are required to keep their hands on the wheel, even when using the driver assist features. And further, the website on Tesla's you know, page, it actually says, the systems, quote, do not make the vehicle autonomous, end quote. So it does say on the webpage, this doesn't make this an autonomous vehicle, even while they also show videos where they say, the only reason we have a driver in the, the driver's seat is for legal reasons. So it does sound a lot like doublespeak, right? Like the cars aren't autonomous, but you know, they can drive themselves. Anyway, Teslas have been involved in numerous high-profile accidents, some of them involving fatalities. So the DOJ is investigating the company, presumably to see if there are any criminal implications here. It's possible that Tesla's seemingly contradictory messages may keep the company legally safe, in that Tesla's lawyers can truthfully point out that Tesla has denied that its vehicles are autonomous. This is not the only legal investigation into Tesla by any means. And it might be a while before we hear of any potential judicial action against the company, if in fact any, any are pending. Okay, we've got some more news stories to get through. Before we get to that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. 
Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. We're back from break. We still have one more, you know, tangentially Elon Musk related story because we're going to talk about SpaceX and specifically Starlink. So earlier this year, Starlink, which is the satellite internet service provider arm of SpaceX, offered up a service for RV owners and RV owners would pay 135 bucks per month for internet access through Starlink. However, it would only work for RVs that were stationary, that were parked, in other words. However, Later this year, in December, Starlink is going to offer a plan that will allow RV owners to access the internet even while driving the RV. Now, to do so will require the installation of a new kind of satellite dish, uh, one that comes with a hefty $2,500 fee. If you were just getting the standard stationary access system in your RV, that one cost $599 to install. So... It's a pretty hefty upgrade. You know, it's almost $2,000 more expensive. 
The monthly cost for access will still be a $135 subscription fee. Starlink has recently been targeting use cases for moving vehicles from private planes to ships at sea, and we can now add RVs on the road to that list. Earlier today, hackers got access to the New York Post's website and Twitter feed and used that access to publish some really awful headlines, mostly targeting specific politicians. Those headlines included racist, misogynist, and other disgusting language. The Post regained control of its accounts not too long after they had been seized and was able to remove the offending material This marks the second time during the current election season here in the United States that a publication found itself hacked. Uh, Fast Company was a target of such a hack in late September, actually took its websites down for a full week to deal with that. Both Fast Company and the New York Post rely upon WordPress as a content management system, but as of this recording, there's been no further information about how the hackers got access to the New York Post website. Anyway, It's yet another fun example of how political events can drive terrible things in technology. Sigh. This past August, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan to meet with Morris Cheng, the founder of semiconductor company TSMC. And you might remember that TSMC is responsible for the production of much of the chips we rely upon in our electronics and most of the higher-end chips. The U.S. has recently passed legislation aimed at bootstrapping the semiconductor industry here in the United States, and so it aims to shift some of the dependence on Taiwan to U.S.-based facilities. And now the Financial Times in Taiwan reports that during the visit back in August, Chang told Pelosi that the United States' efforts are, quote, doomed to fail, end quote. Now, that might be the case. But there are some other factors that may have influenced Chang when he made such a proclamation, assuming that the reporting is accurate. For example, Taiwan currently enjoys a not entirely stable independence from mainland China, and the Western world's reliance on semiconductors means that countries like the United States have a vested interest in keeping Taiwan free from Chinese interference. Therefore, if China were to make any kind of aggressive moves toward Taiwan, that would likely pull the U.S. into what could become a dangerous conflict. So it's the threat of the U.S.'s involvement that keeps Taiwan temporarily safe. But if the West were to reduce its reliance on Taiwan when it comes to semiconductors, then this silicon shield around Taiwan will weaken. Therefore, Jiang has an existential motivation to dismiss the U.S.'s efforts to become independent with semiconductors. Now, that doesn't mean he's wrong. He might be right. We're very early in the United States' effort to revitalize the semiconductor industry here in the States, and it could turn into a total fiasco. Uh, It is sure to have some bumpy spots along the road. That's just the nature of reality. We just don't know where that road ultimately is going to lead. We know the intended destination is greater independence when it comes to producing semiconductors. Now, considering Taiwan's situation, I think it's safe to say we cannot assume Chang's projections on the matter are free from bias. They're certainly not free from personal interest. Well, it's almost Halloween, so how about some terrifying news? A video from the official Kestrel defense page on the Chinese microblogging site Weibo 
shows a large drone dropping off a four-legged robot, similar to the kinds of robots you've seen from Boston Dynamics, only this robot also happens to have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Sorry, I'm mixing up my holidays here. Anyway, the video demonstrates that this technology is ready to go, at least according to the defense company behind it. The robot and the gun would be under human control, so this would be a remotely controlled robot, not an autonomous one. You would have an operator capable of maneuvering the robot and firing its weapon, and this tech could potentially be used in battlefield situations where you want to drop off robotic soldiers, say, behind enemy lines to attack in a different direction or you know, in other locations that are all intended to put pressure on the enemy on multiple fronts. This is exactly the kind of use that companies like Boston Dynamics recently pledged they would not pursue, the weaponization of robotic platforms. Of course, the U.S. military is certainly hard at work at building these kinds of things itself, so this is something that looks like it's going to be on the horizon no matter what. And yes, this is terrifying, because there's really a worry that robotic forces are going to reduce barriers that countries face before they engage in armed conflict, right? It might remove certain concerns and make it more likely that we'll see more war. It's a lot easier to sell your invasion to your population if that population isn't, you know, seeing its own soldiers being put in harm's way. See also Russia. There's also an additional fear that we could see future technologies progress toward automation for navigation and combat. That's something that's particularly scary when you keep in mind that computer vision is by no means incapable of making mistakes. So not only is it already scary to think of a robot with a gun, it's even scarier to think it's a robot with a gun that might think that you're not on its side. Not great. Recently, NVIDIA unveiled its 40 series of graphics cards, the new flagship cards that set the company's standard for performance. But problems have already popped up with the RTX 4090 from NVIDIA itself, as there have been a few reports of users discovering that a 16-pin adapter used to connect the card to the computer's power supply can overheat, which can cause the adapter to melt or even catch fire. Now, Igor Labs has released an article that reveals that these adapters were poorly made in the first place, with substandard soldering that can lead to these issues. Igor Labs has alerted NVIDIA to the problem, which was likely caused when the company relied on an assembly partner that took some shortcuts. Gamers who are eager to get NVIDIA's new chips may want to hold off. There is the distinct possibility that NVIDIA will hold a recall and, and correct this issue before sending out new cards. So it might be better to just wait. Uh, or you might want to wait for third-party manufacturers to offer their own 4090 cards. Because NVIDIA's business strategy is not just to manufacture the cards itself, but it also licenses the design and the tech out to other manufacturers. And if those manufacturers actually replace the adapter that NVIDIA includes in its kits, then it might solve the problem as well. And thus, you could end up with a graphics card that is safer than the official NVIDIA version. Uh, I do think we're probably going to see a recall and replacement process before long, but as of the time I'm recording this, that has not yet been announced. Gamers who have been anticipating the release of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and who got their hands on a physical copy of the game might be shocked to learn that there's no game on that physical disc. In fact, according to Eurogamer, 
there's just 72 megabytes of data on those disks. Now, the game, it turns out, is closer to 35 gigabytes in size. Uh, on the PS5, that can actually balloon up to 150 gigs once you install a day one patch and you have all the packs for the game installed. So 72 megabytes to 150 gigabytes is a huge gap. What is going on? Well, it looks like the physical disk really just directs machines to download the digital copy anyway. So yes, you'll get a physical disk. That disk will have like the logo and the art and all that kind of stuff. But there's no game on the disk, and all it will do is direct you toward a massive digital download. So if you live somewhere that has lousy internet connectivity, or maybe your data plan has a data cap to it, you might be shocked to learn that your physical copy doesn't actually, you know, let you experience the game. You still have to go through the same steps that you would have had to go through if you just purchased it digitally in the first place. And that leads to the question, why even have a physical option that this is going to be the way it works? It reminds me of a time when you could find box copies of computer games and inside was just a code where you could download the digital copy. And I guess you bought the box so that you would have something to put up on a shelf. I mean, maybe for collectors, but I don't know. It, it's, it hits me the wrong way to have a disc for a game and the game is not on the disc. That just bugs me. Anyway, that's it for today's news episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you are all well. If you have suggestions or any questions or anything like that and you want to get in touch with me, there are a couple ways of doing that. One is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download and use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff in the search field. There's a little microphone icon there. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Let me know if you would like me to use it in a future episode. Or you can reach out on Twitter. While Twitter is still around, I have no idea what's going to happen if Elon Musk closes this deal. So we'll see what happens. But the handle on Twitter is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, sleep tight stories.